So one of the biblical categories that we see repeated throughout the scriptures, okay, um, not just in the text that we're going to look at this morning, but um, from beginning to end, okay, is this category of blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. And it brings to mind passages like this in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Okay, so here you see really the beginning of this immediate use of this category of blessings and curses, right? So, the Lord declares, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And so, especially later on in Deuteronomy, we see a lot of this expounded on. Particular curses for turning aside from the Lord, particular blessings for obedience, and, and particularly related to the land, you know, uh, abundance or famine, being in the land or living in exile. And that theme of blessings and curses continues throughout the Old Testament. Why? Well, because as it turns out, God's people repeatedly come back to curses because of their failure to obey. So it's not like these curses happen because God's people, the normative way that they live their lives is through obedience. You know, but every now and again, wouldn't you know it, they're only human, so they disobey and they experience a curse. That's it's actually not what we find when we open the scriptures. What we find is that the normative position of God's people is disobedience, you know, like, and, and the, the, the times in which they experience blessing, they're experiencing that blessing because God has shown them mercy in the midst of that, right? In the midst of that, we see God's grace extended to them despite circumstances of their own creation. He extends them blessing and he brings them out of exile, right? Despite the circumstances they created by way of their own turning aside. So throughout the Old Testament, we see this and, you know, okay, so this is important to reflect on this morning because every culture, whether religious or secular, I, I would want to suggest has some form of blessings and cursings ideology or language to it. Okay? And obviously in a secular culture, we wouldn't put it in terms of blessings and curses. Those words have a lot of uh, religious connotation, okay? But it's still very present. I mean, this idea is still very present, especially, so here's an example that we see, especially this time of year, which is a really good opportunity to talk about it every year, right? New year, new you, you know? So, so, so people say, think about all the curses that you'll experience if you just carry on the way that you're carrying on at the end of 2023 with your unhealthy eating habits and with, you know, you, you didn't do one ice bath in 2023. Um, <laughs> think about the curses that will result in, from your bad habits and all these. But now, if you make this change, whatever it is, whether it's health and fitness, business, finance, some other category, you'll receive blessings. Okay. Um, not use, they wouldn't use that language, but that's the idea. Obviously, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with taking a hard look back on the previous year and thinking through ways that we can make improvements and and live our lives in a way that more fully resounds the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, of course that's good. But the way we think we can hold to those resolutions and like make improvements and progress in our lives matters. 
you know, and, and the order that we put some of these things in, in terms of like its ultimate importance, like is this an ultimate good or not, that also matters, and it matters a great deal. There's a reason that the majority of New Year's resolutions conversations by March are punchlines about our failures, because it just seems to be back to the curses again, you know, every year, every single year, very, very quickly. I think I, I, I read or heard somewhere that something like 93% of all stated New Year's resolutions are just done by the middle of February. We're like talking about a month and a half, six weeks, you know, and it's probably also true that like 87% of statistics you hear are made up on the spot. But the idea here is that we get to the end of February. It's not a long time, and it seems to be back to the curses again. And I'll tell you this much. What about the 7%? Well, for the 7% who happened to continue on, on the one hand, maybe we could say there's blessing, but there's also curses from within the blessing. Why? Because we start to grow in some arrogance and some pridefulness and a way of thinking that it's like, look what I'm doing. What's wrong with everybody else? You know, like you're looking around at the gym. It's March 1st. Everybody, it started out, there was a lot of you, and now you've kind of made it through the crucible, and no one's left, and you're feeling pretty, you know, I'm a regular here. You know, you're feeling pretty good at, about yourself. There's not a lot of humility. There's perhaps a lot of judgmentalism to those who weren't able to stick it out like you did, right? So we see this clear cycle of predominant curses from within humanity all the time, and yet um, in secular culture, we're often not sure how to categorize them. Like the Bible has a category for these things. Secular culture doesn't. And, and we're even, so we don't know how to categorize them in our culture. We're even less sure about what to do about it. You know, because the only way that we can think to, to resolve the issue is to do what got us into this problem to begin with. Resolve, which then dissolves. Resolve, which then dissolves, right? Um, okay, so let's fast forward. I think this will connect. Let's fast forward from the Deuteronomy passage in our text this morning to John 13. Okay, super thankful for Paul Burr unpacking so clearly last week the section for us um, in which Jesus concludes that, that we are to be blessed with his example, his model of servant leadership. Jesus himself, the ultimate example of this, telling them, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things. Blessed are you if you do them, okay? Uh, we see statements of blessings. Blessings on those who are show, so shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, because right as Paul showed us, that whole section is just so bathed in, in the grace of Christ, right? So those who are so shaped by the, the grace of Christ that they become more like him. But the promise of blessings on those who hear and believe is now followed in our text this morning with a warning of curses, Jesus now says in verse 18, would you look there with me? He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I'm not speaking to all of you. While there were blessings for those who heard and obeyed, there's also curses in the text for those who do not respond by live according, living according to the gospel. And in fact, this applies in the text this morning to one of the 12, because this is the Thursday before the death of Christ. Like, it's, it's gonna, we're going to have to come back to reminding ourselves of what's happening here. Everything that we're going to be in together as a church family between now and actual Good Friday and three months from now, at the end of March, is going to be happening on the Thursday night before Good Friday, right? So hours from this text 
The disciples will see Jesus going to the cross, you know, arrested, going to the cross. We're going to see all of that. So this is like on the precipice. And it's in this, so the 12 are gathered, and it's in this moment that Jesus predicts his betrayal from one of them. There's, there is one among them setting out to betray him. But in the midst of that betrayal, what we learn is um, six supreme realities in the text about God and about us. Six realities that will help us make sense of this idea of blessings and curses. And look, it's a difficult text. This is a difficult text. It's one of these texts that would be easy if we didn't have a conviction that we teach through the scriptures. To, to, like, if we were teaching topically all the time, there's no way we land in, the, in these verses. Okay, these 13 verses do not make our, its way because this is very, very difficult. But difficult doesn't mean not helpful. Difficult doesn't mean not God's word, right? Okay. So we're going to wrestle with it, and we should wrestle with it, but as we do so, I believe it accomplishes a couple of objectives in our hearts. You know, pastorally, first, my my prayer is that this text reassures hearers who are blessed by God. Blessed are those, right, who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have seen their spiritual bankruptcy, realized their need of Christ, thrown themselves on his mercies. And for those who've done that, There's reassurances here, and those reassurances come in a variety of ways. But I believe also that we have a warning here. So on the one hand, it reassures, but it also warns. It it warns of what what it means to reject Jesus. And we'll see all this in six supreme realities, starting in verse 18. Look there with me now. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, so here we see the supreme purpose of this betrayal. So this betrayal has a supreme purpose behind it. So understand what's happening in the context of this chapter. I think the best way to start is to go back, and it won't be the last time we do this, because I think it's not something that, that we naturally think about, okay? But to go back uh, to a quote I, I pulled up from an article written by Justin Taylor at the Gospel Coalition a few years ago, I think back in like 2012, actually, entitled, We're All Compatibilists at the Cross. And if you remember, Taylor highlights two propositions that are both taught and exemplified in the Bible. Um, up here, I'll give you both in like a nutshell format. I'll read the longer edition here. So number one, two propositions. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. All right? Absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. But he's not sovereign in any sense. Like, we can never view God's sovereignty as license to live as we want. And, and there is a, you know, there's an extreme wing of Reformed theology. It's often known, and we don't need to get into a lot of, Labels, you can come talk to me after, but, you know, hyper-Calvinism. It's this idea that because God is sovereign, it doesn't matter if I evangelize. It doesn't really matter how I live my life. And it doesn't even really matter if I sin because God is sovereign over all things, and so I can just live life as I will, and, and there's, no, there's no bearing on human responsibility. That is simply not how the Bible describes this. It's not how Jesus talks about life. Yes, Jesus affirms God's sovereignty. But Jesus also says, as we've talked about before, you know, like he says, woe to you, 
to the Pharisees. Why? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets, kills those who are sent to it. How I longed to gather you as, as a, a hen would gather chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. He doesn't say, but in my sovereignty, I didn't. No, he says, but you were unwilling. Like, you were responsible. You were unwilling. Therefore, your house is being left to you desolate. So God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions to reduce human responsibility. Similarly, number two, human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey. I mean, this is how the scriptures talk. They choose, they, disobey, they, they, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance to their choices, but human responsibility never functions in scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. So this idea, we're responsible f- for all, all these things, but now God, what that must mean is that what God does is dependent upon me and my choices. You know, God's contingent on my choices. That is not how the scriptures talk about this, okay? So we need to understand this, and there's, so, so there's complexity behind it, there's, there's mystery, there's a lot more to be said that we can't say here, but this is going to help us understand what's happening in the text, right? This biblical reality is known as compatibilism. It's the idea that human free will is compatible with God's sovereignty. It's not incompatible. The two are compatible. Uh, it's going to be central in helping us understand the passage in John 13. Because on the one hand, this betrayal plays a purpose in redemptive history, right? There's a supreme purpose. Uh, it's like what we talked about on Christmas Eve. The light was purposefully withheld from the darkness for a time. Why? So that we could see how dark it is. So that we could see our need for a Savior, right? So it's like that. But this morning we see it here because there are those who are chosen as genuine disciples in the passage with the one betraying really looking on from the outside. So he goes, I, I'm not talking about all of you. I know whom I've chosen. So there's one of you who's kind of looking in on, on the outside, not a genuine disciple. But on the other hand, in this passage even, there's a sense in which this is true. And, and according to other passages that we've already read in John's gospel account, there's just no doubt that Judas himself, sorry, the betrayer, spoiler alert there, got a little ahead of myself, um, that the betrayer, whoever he is, uh, was, was chosen. Was actually, so you remember John 6, verse 70, okay? Have I not chosen you, the 12? So I've not chosen all of you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. It sums it up really nicely. I've chosen all of you, yet one of you is a devil. I've chosen all of you, but there's a purpose behind everything here, okay? So while there's a sense in the passage the betrayer wasn't Chosen as a genuine disciple, Jesus makes it clear elsewhere that this betrayer was indeed chosen to play a role here in redemptive history. It's very, very difficult to make the case otherwise. How, how could you? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and the quote Jesus uses here demonstrates that reality because he's saying that the reason for this betrayal was its supreme purpose on the road to redemption. So, so what does Jesus do? Well, he quotes, you know, he quotes from Psalm 41. In, and, and this psalm, it's ascribed to David. It's a Davidic psalm. And that's important because, it, you know, who's David? Well, he's king in Israel. He's this promised king who would come to God's people. And we're given this Davidic covenant. God's people are given this Davidic covenant in which there's this king, future king from the line of David who would come and make all things right and he'd reign on David's throne forever. And David himself is a type of this this coming one, this Messiah, throughout the scriptures, he's a type in the broader themes of his life, certainly not everything, not, not all of his examples, but 
but, but the broader themes of his life, but also he's a type in the way that he talks in the Psalms. You know, like the earliest Christians saw that. The disciples themselves saw that. You know, we see it in the themes of David's life, his suffering, his weakness, his discouragement, uh, the pressing in of enemies all around him. And so think about John and everything that we've seen so far, the pressing in of those who oppose Jesus, the rising conflict and opposition that we've seen throughout. But not only the pressing in of enemies, which Jesus has certainly experienced, but also David dealt with the betrayal of those closest to him. And that's what he's writing about in Psalm 41, the betrayal of those closest to him. And there's something that Jesus has come to do. And in order to fulfill it, there's a plan set in motion in which he would be betrayed as David was, but to an even greater and perfect degree, betrayed unto his own death, and it would be that death that brings life to his people, right? So um, it reminds us of how the apostles would reflect on the Psalms later on in, in the book of Acts. So listen, the disciples pray this, Sovereign Lord, so they start with the confession of his sovereignty, Sovereign Lord, who made the, heavens, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, okay, about to quote this psalm, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, so David's, David's writing what we're about to read about himself, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So David's talking in part about something he's experiencing, but how do the disciples understand it in a truer and better way? They say, for truly in this city, in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the true and better anointed one. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus is sharing this information about the supreme purpose of this betrayal because he wants his disciples to be assured of the reality of his sovereignty. And that is quite an assurance. It's quite good news. You know, like, what, what, what's about to happen, you know, is monumental, what the disciples are about to go through. But not only is what they're about to experience hours from now not outside of Jesus' control, it's his purpose in coming. It's why he came. And Jesus shares that to strengthen their faith for what they're about to experience. Look at verses 19 and 20. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, the, the cross, uh, his arrest, in hours from now, the cross, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus doesn't position himself in this text as a victim of other people's choices. You know? Like, he's not going to the cross positioning himself as, well, if someone betrays me, I guess I'll have to deal with this cross. He's not portraying himself as being contingent in any way on the choices of others. He's positioning himself as the one who is in control of it. The one who has redemptive purposes behind it. And that's good news because it points to the reality of who he is. Because listen, Jesus couldn't be in control in the way that he's describing here if he wasn't who he claimed to be. And if he didn't demonstrate this kind of control leading to the cross, how would we know? That he wasn't just some other guy. That he has the power that he claims he has. And who does he claim to be? He says, I'm telling you this before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe 
I am he. That phrase, I am he, is the same one we've seen throughout John. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's these words, ego me. I am he. It's the words that Jesus called to the disciples on the boat during the storm from the shore when he yelled, it is I. Same words. These words bring us back to the burning bush, back to the declaration throughout the Old Testament of the I am, the very name of God himself. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. And in the hours that are to come, you know, we're going to see together, the disciples are going to find it very difficult to come to terms with the events that are happening around them. The disciples, you know, in Luke's account, we see the disciples leaving Jerusalem totally discouraged, not knowing what to do next, disenchanted with everything, struggling to come to terms. But they would have found it impossible without the reality of Jesus being God himself, being in control of all things, because the crucifixion would not be Jesus' failure on display. The crucifixion would be Jesus' glory on display. Grant Osborne writes this, and I, uh, I intentionally picked Dr. Osborne. He was my um, hermeneutics professor at Trinity. He has a different view on the way that God's sovereignty and human free will interact than like D.A. Carson does, right? But he, but he concludes it this way. He says, Jesus chose Judas because of scriptural fulfillment to show that even when he is pursued and betrayed by evil men, he and the Father are in complete control. Look, I don't know how you can conclude otherwise in the text related to the sovereignty of God in this way. So this is the supreme purpose of this betrayal. It demonstrates the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. He's in control of all these proceedings. He's not surprised by it. But that information brings us secondly to what we'll call the supreme crossroads at this betrayal. The supreme crossroads at this betrayal, starting in verse 21. After saying these things... Jesus was troubled in, in his spirit. It's not the third time we've seen that in relatively, that phrase, troubled in spirit. For Jesus, it happened at the tomb of Lazarus. It happened later on when he's reflecting on the cross, but, but we're starting to see what, what Jesus is about to experience in Gethsemane just hours from now. He's, he's letting us know he's troubled by, by this. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So, all right. The tensions rise around the table because Jesus, you know, the disciples have been, you know, the disciples have misunderstood Jesus a lot. So I don't think there's like a ton of degree of confidence that when he's speaking, they always know what he's talking about. So you can kind of like, if you imagine being around a table with Jesus as he's, as he's teaching your facial expression, always being like, okay, you know, um, apart from the Holy Spirit, you know, pre, pre-death and resurrection. But... Uh, now Jesus gets specific in a way that's like very, one of you will betray me is what I'm trying to tell you now. And um, it's not a vague thing. So this has a, a stirring effect on the disciples. Mark's account has them asking the question, is it me? You know, am I the one who's going to do this? So there's a sadness mingled with inner panic. Is he talking about me? And, and, and I think even that shows us something. There's an understanding in each of the disciples when it really gets down to it, when the rubber really meets the road in their lives and in their hearts, there's this understanding of themselves that they're absolutely capable of this kind of a betrayal. You know. Like I'm sure there's, this, you know, there's also evaluation of others. They're looking around at each other. But it's, not, it's also recorded this way. Like it's not a huge leap 
for them to inwardly think that they could poss- he, could, he could possibly be talking about them. But we should also remember, so the disciples are hearing this, they're doing some self-evaluation, but the betrayer is also hearing this. And this, so this is something of an ultimate crossroads. Jesus is telling them that someone's planning to betray him, someone who's around that table, and everyone is examining their own response to Jesus. And so Carson reminds us, he says, the betrayer knows he's about to be exposed and is confronted with the starkest choice. You know, it's interesting to hear Grant Osborne talk about how it's like God's sovereignty, and now here's Carson saying, it's choice. All right, listen. Rush forward immediately to execute his wretched plot. So here's the choice of the betrayer. Rush forward immediately to execute his wretched plot or renounce his evil and beg forgiveness. There's a crossroads. Now you could say, wait a minute. Do we remember the first point? There's supreme purpose behind this betrayal. What are you talking about? How could he, how do you talk about renounce it? How could he renounce it? How could he beg for mercy? Haven't we already concluded? This is part of God's sovereign plan. And yes, yes it is, but remember. Remember our two principles for understanding this rightly. We need both. God is absolutely sovereign. His sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility, so you can't reduce the betrayer's human responsibility. You can't. He is at a crossroads. Number two, humans are responsible creatures, but human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God contingent on us. Right? So in some sense, the reality of God's sovereignty certainly does not relieve you the betrayer, okay? At the same time, we know what the outcome will be. And more than that, Jesus knows what the outcome will be. He's in control. And so we see it's at these supreme crossroads that now, very intentionally, it's followed with uh, supreme grace in the midst of this betrayal. There's supreme grace extended. So look at verse 23. Could you do that with me? Verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So you have this intentional contrast, I think, in the text between a betraying disciple and a beloved disciple. A betraying disciple and a beloved disciple probably sitting kind of across from one another here directly. One at his right, most likely. One at his left. Okay? A betraying and a beloved disciple. And you know... um, Okay, this, this, we're not told outright in John's gospel account who this disciple that Jesus loved is. He makes several appearances. I don't have time. I had a whole section. Don't have time. We're, we're going to have more opportunities for me to talk about why this is John, but this is John. Okay, um, it's the vast majority of, of scholars and history say this is, this is the author of this text referring to himself. So I think it's talking about John here. It's John's self-description throughout his his. Uh, gospel account, but, you know, we have, we have a problem with that sometimes. One of the problems we have, and I think we got a few, but one of them is this notion that creeps in that John appears to be kind of a little bit bragging about his, like, with this description, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm the, so you have all these other guys, and then you have the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's like if Kirk Cousins started attending GLC and all the guys started arguing about which one Kirk thinks is his best friend at, G- at Gospel Life, you know, like, came to the men's retreat, but he hung out with me the most. I'm the beloved friend of Kirk Cousins, right? So, like, we have this idea that this is what John is trying to do with Jesus, but it's a cultural misunderstanding of what John is doing and saying. Leslie Newbegin, you know, Newbegin was a missionary to India in the 20th century. 
combated the ideas of relativism that were steeped in uh, Indian culture. And super helpful here in his own, uh, his own exposition of John at giving us a picture of why this is important, why this demonstrates grace. He writes this, he says, the beloved disciple, if a self-designation implies not arrogance as if to say, I am more, be- I'm more loved than others, but a profound sense of, a profound sense of indebtedness to grace. What a wonder that I should be loved by the incarnate word. What a wonder that I should be loved by the incarnate word. This isn't the statement of arrogance. It's a statement of indebtedness to grace. And most likely his silence on the matter is one of saying like, I don't want to even claim to be sharing a platform with Jesus. Newbegin goes on to say, I don't even want to be claiming a platform with him. It's not about the messenger. It's about the one it's not about the, the, the witness, it's about the one I'm testifying about. It's about Jesus. Right? So this is all grace. It's sheer grace. So here you have John experiencing intimacy with Jesus, reclining at table at his side, and the entire experience is a testimony to his own indebtedness to sheer grace. What a wonder that I should be loved by the incarnate word. But the beloved disciple isn't the only recipient in this chapter of love, and it's a, it get, this is where it gets really powerful, I think, in a different kind of way. Because we also see enemy love in the text. Here we move from this picture of supreme grace in the midst of this betrayal to supreme love toward the betrayer from Jesus. So look at verses 24 to 26. So Simon Peter, motioning to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, we're talking about, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers, answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when they had, had dipped them the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Okay, Peter, Peter normally is unthinkingly bold in the gospel accounts, you know? So this is a, this gives you a window not into Peter so much as like, into how fragile the situation is here. Because normally, Peter's bold even when his pronouncements are really off the mark, and Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, you know? But, but this situation appears to be so fragile that even he's like, he's not going to just blurt out, who are you talking about, man? He's going to be real skittish, quiet. Because rather than blurting out his question about the identity of the betrayer, he leans into John, who is next to him. So I think... Because John has to lean back, because of the way the table would have been arranged, I think we're best thinking, the, the, the most probable scenario, John is on Jesus' right side, okay, and Peter is next to John on that side, okay? So Peter's immediately next to him, so he leans over and quietly whispers this to ask him, ask him who this is. So John does this, and the, you know, his back almost would have been to Jesus around the table, so the best way to do this quietly is to lean against get into his ear. He does this quietly, discreetly. And Jesus' answer is apparently also discreet, like entrusted only to John in hushed tones, because the disciples in a second are going to be confused as to what just happened. They did not hear the answer. Uh, So this is intended to be understood here as a quiet exchange between Jesus and John. Jesus answers, it's the one I'm going to give this morsel of bread to after I've dipped it. 
So to just to, I th- here's what I think. I think this is Thursday night. I think this is the meal that the Jewish people would have ha- had when the lambs were being slaughtered for Passover on, on that Thursday night. And this is probably the part of the meal in which bitter herbs on bread were dipped into what was called like a heroset sauce. Um, dates, raisins, sour wine. Okay, bitter herbs would have been dipped. Um, the question is, so he, he, he takes, he dips, and he hands it to Judas. The question is, why would he do this? Why would he offer this over to Judas in this way? Why would this be his means of identifying the betrayer? Two quick observations. Knowing the customs of the day, I think, really help us with this. First, given how this meal would have been arranged, like I said, Peter and John are seated at the right-hand side, and given how easily Jesus appears, both what he does and the ease with which he does it, it seems right to go with the majority view that Judas is on his left side immediately, right? Um, it would, it would, like, John isn't going to be leaning up against him past, like, four or five guys, excuse me, you know, on the ground. And Judas, it would, that's not how these exchanges would have taken place. Probably on the left, left side for Judas. Um, and it's important to understand, uh, okay, what this means is the person who sat on the left side of the host, and a first century reader would have understood this, whether they were Greek or Hebrew person seated on the left side of the host is sitting in the place of honor. This is the place of honor in customary Jewish meal, to sit at the left side of the host. So here you have Judas sitting, not just, I don't think speculatively, I think actually most likely, in the position of highest honor. And second, here you have Jesus, the host of the meal then, the host taking a, a choice, tasty morsel, dipping it in this sauce and handing it directly to him. And this was done in the ancient world. The host would honor his honored guest in this way. And it was done exactly for that reason. It was done as a means of displaying honor and friendship and gentleness and love. And almost all of the commentaries get into that, right? So um, I, think, I think that's what's meant by it, which is demonstrative of the heart of Christ. It shows us Jesus' compassion and love. I think that this not only shows us that, but it shows us like, so when we come to the table, here we have this meal of, of mercy and love. It's a meal that shows us what Christ has done for us, his, his body broken, his blood shed. You can eat it unto judgment if you come and you take it, but you reject Christ. It's like you can display, you can proclaim the gospel with it and gospel belief, but you can also proclaim judgment by rejecting Jesus, rejecting the meal. I think something similar is happening here be- This is where we uh, move from supreme love toward the betrayer from Jesus to supreme hatred from the betrayer toward Jesus. That's what we see here uh, in the next set of verses. Verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? What, What you are going to do, do it quickly. So I think what's happening here is Jesus does. He, he, He extends an act of one more act of love toward Judas. The same kind of love displayed in choosing Judas as one of the twelve, but in the same way Judas responds to Jesus, not in receiving or reciprocating that love, but rather in hatred and rebellion. And what does it remind us of? Well, how does John start this gospel account? How does he frame it for us? He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. You know? He lovingly comes to his own. He holds out life and light but his own people reject him. He lovingly holds out friendship and love to Judas. But Judas only returns hatred to Christ. I want to quote Newbegin again here because 
I just think it's so on point. He says, so the final gesture of affection, and I think that's what this is toward Judas, this final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has neither understood it nor mastered it. Carson agrees. I think he's also helpful just to sum this up. Judas received the sop. The sop is like the morsel dipped into the harasset sauce. The sop, but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardens his resolve. Like, have we ever been in that kind of a situation where we're so angry with someone, and when they respond in love, maybe it makes you double down on your anger. And it seems to be happening to Judas here. He's just, it makes him even more angry. Hardens his resolve to do what he's doing. And so Satan enters him. As most of the commentaries point out, it's probably indicating like possession, thorough possession. Uh, so, so Jesus tells him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Uh, this might be comparative language, like do this more quickly than you were planning. In other words, like it's a way of saying my time has come now, so the thing you were planning on doing all along, do it now. Now is the hour. And that's another reminder that Jesus is ultimately in control, even at this moment in which Judas hardens his resolve against Jesus uh, in supreme hatred from the betrayer toward Jesus. But that brings us, you know, like to this set of texts at the very end of this section that shows us why Jesus had to come in the first place. It it shows us the supremacy of Jesus and where we find the center of the supremacy of Jesus in the midst of the betrayal. Like, here we see in these last three verses why Jesus came. Now, no one at the table, starting in verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Okay, so as we said, here's evidence that the conversation was quiet between John and Jesus because the disciples don't know what's happening. They're troubled. He's been entrusted with the information, so we don't know why, but he doesn't try to, like, interfere, stop Judas at all. And the others, just they don't, they don't know what happens. But the text concludes with the phrase that we've seen before that conveys, like, the situational context, like what happened in history when it happened, as well as the theological context. It happened at night. He went out at night. But also, the, it shows us something that was happening in the midst of Judas's heart. The darkness in his heart is matched by the darkness of the night into which he flees. He flees into the night. And this is what happens for all of us who reject Jesus. We flee into the darkness. We flee in further into the darkness of our own hearts. It's a warning in that way. And, and that expresses to us the very... But, but listen, with that warning comes so much grace and mercy... Such, a, such good news, such good news, because that's the position of our hearts apart from Christ, right? It's fleeing into the darkness. It's walking blindly. But here we see that it expresses the very reason Jesus came. Here in the text, we find assurances, assurances of Jesus' control over all things, assurances of his love for his people, assurances even of his love toward the world that's rejected him, and yet we find a warning that we cannot simply continue reviling him and rejecting him and believe ourselves to be the recipients of his blessing and love. How we respond to Jesus matters, and you know, like, that's what John is, is, is shepherding his readers toward, a right response to Jesus. How we respond matters, but the good news is the supremacy of Jesus in the midst of all of this, the supremacy of Jesus is centrally seen at the cross. 
How does blessings and curses ultimately work itself out? If we can't, if the idea of curses is the idea that come mid-February, you know, like resolutions are gone. Like if we don't, if you look at the history of God's people and the history of God's people is actually that the normative position is failure to obey, failure to obey, failure to obey, and and any blessing we receive is always just going to be because God rescues us out, then how on earth do we have any hope if we can't do it and we can't do it and we can't do it and it's because of the cross, because at the cross, right, what happened? Jesus lived this life that was actually the only person in all of history that was deserving the blessing on the basis of obedience, an obedient life before the Father, the only one who did not turn aside to serve other gods, the only one who was right before the Father in right standing. And so what did he deserve? The blessing. But what, did he, what happened at the end of his life? He took the curse that we deserved upon his shoulders at the cross that we might receive the blessing that he deserved if we throw ourselves on his mercy. He bore the wrath that his enemies and betrayers deserved so that we could throw ourselves on his mercy. There's a lot of complexity here pastorally. A lot of things that I want to communicate. God's sovereign. We're responsible. So, so that, okay? So a lot of complexity, but listen. Just God's sovereign. We're responsible. So hear the good news. The good news of Christ's death on your behalf, the good news that he bore what you weren't able to, the the good news that he bore your curse so that you wouldn't have to, so that you could throw yourselves on his mercy and be saved and have life with him that begins now and goes on forever? Hear this good news and respond rightly, understanding that the darkness of night in your own hearts is darker than you even understand or comprehend apart from Christ. But in his great love for you, he's made a way for you to be known and to be loved and to be seated at his table. Receive it. Live according to it. And don't leave here without telling someone else. If you're sensing this urge to give your life to Christ, to throw yourself on his mercies, do that this morning, now. Let's pray. Lord, we cling to your sovereignty precisely because we're so in need of you and we recognize that need. We're so in need of your power and your love that you've displayed on our behalf that we might know you. And so this morning, would you encourage our hearts with gospel that if we believe this, we might continue to to be strengthened in it that if we don't, that we might throw ourselves on your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.